Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. All right, everybody, welcome to the program. This is The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. Thank you for listening. I hope you are doing all right. We're going to do another craft work episode today. I am going to be in conversation with Emily Rapp Black, and we're going to be talking about the issue of truth in writing creative nonfiction. And while we're at it, what are the differences between nonfiction and creative nonfiction or creative nonfiction and autofiction? These are just a few of the things that I had the chance to talk with Emily about, and it was illuminating. Our conversation is coming up momentarily. Before we get there, I do want to remind you that I do an email newsletter on a weekly basis. It is free, and you can sign up for it at otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. It is simple. It is user-friendly. I will let you know on a weekly basis about the latest episodes of the show, and I also share links to things that I've been reading and finding interesting. So I would love it if you would sign up for my newsletter over at otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. Also, I would love it if you would consider joining the Other People Patreon community. If you are a regular listener, if you love this show, if you get something from it, you can join the Patreon community over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. It's easy. It's a sliding scale. You can get merchandise. Check it out over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. All right. So my guest once again is Emily Rapp Black. She is the author of five books of creative nonfiction, including a memoir called Poster Child, which is about disability. Emily had most of her left leg amputated during childhood due to a congenital defect. Her other books include the memoirs, The Still Point of the Turning World, which was a New York Times bestseller, and a memoir called Sanctuary. Both deal with grief and loss. Emily lost her son Ronan to Tay-Sachs disease before he turned three years old. So she has been through it in life and has found a way to write about it and write about it beautifully. Emily is a professor of creative writing at UC Riverside and is a co-founder, along with Gina Frangello, a buddy of mine and a past guest on this show, of a company called Circe Consulting that coaches writers and helps them with developmental editing. 
So a great resource and a great conversation with Emily Rapplack that I'm very happy to share with you right now. Here she is, folks. This is Emily Rapp Black. I mean, nonfiction, of course, is, is a huge umbrella term for, you know, truth, like things that tell the truth, like the narratives that tell the truth. Creative nonfiction means you get a little bit more freedom in, tr- in terms of reinvention and imagination. So nonfiction, like, I mean, well, you could argue that news stories are supposed to be straight nonfiction. Now we know that the objectivity of that is ne- not necessarily like foolproof, right? So I would say creative nonfiction has to do with things like memoir, essays, lyric essays, those kinds of things. Nonfiction, I think, would fall more in the category of like autobiography or biography. Someone who's writing about Flannery O'Connor, like Brad Gooch's great uh, biography of Flannery O'Connor. I was just teaching the Mary Shelley biography in my class about Frankenstein. But memoir and an essay, like a memoir reads more like a novel than it does an autobiography or a biography and an essay reads more like a short story in terms of the narrative tension, the way that characters are developed. It's just that it's based on truth, on real lived experience versus, you know, elves and wolves or werewolves or other non-creature characters that are pulled from the sky and given something to do in a story. But the flip side of that is also that in fiction, we know that a lot of times we write fiction, we draw from our own personal experiences too. So Nonfiction is basically saying, this is me, I, I is me, except we, of course, one of the things about that is that it's a fabrication of the person who is telling the story. It's a character development. So I say I in my memoirs, but that person isn't this person sitting here. It's the person I created to tell the story who is based on me. So it's already an invention, right? It's already a conceit, if you will. So, and that's important because we need to be a little bit at a distance, even in memoir and essays that are based on our real life, or else it's a journal and no one really wants to read your journal. I mean, I don't want to read my own journal. Right. I, yeah. I, that's the thing about journals for me is like keeping one is yeah. so painful in retrospect. If you ever pick up an old journal, unless you're somebody who's just like a gifted diarist, I guess, like Anise Nin or something, you know? No, mine is like to-do lists, rants. It's just like, I don't want to read that. It's like, I actually had, I tell this story a lot, but I had, um, when I was in high school, I had a Jesus journal. Oh yeah. And it was basically, because I was, (laughs) my dad's a pastor, so as youth group, we had to keep this journal about how Jesus functioned in our lives, which for me was apparently not at all because I would say something (laughs) like, I love Jesus, or I really need to learn, you know, love Jesus. And the next line was like, like it was so bad. Like I read sections of it to some of my class, some of my classes, and they're like, "Oh my god, make it stop!" You know, it's like you've ever seen like a dog whistle of bad writing. So yeah, no, I mean it's it's um, it, it, you know, memoir is very carefully curated, and I would actually say that it's a huge privacy firewall for me. It acts as a privacy firewall because I get to cultivate a story that is based on my story and it has the emotional truths and kernels in there. But then I don't have to have revealing conversations that are emotionally triggering in elevators. So if someone's like, oh, what's wrong with your body? Or, oh, what happened to your kid? I can just be like, well, I wrote a book. Right, right. Go read it. Which is, so it's a a form of protection in a way. So when people are like, oh, I can't imagine. Or, you know, what what was it like? I'm like, well, here's here's a slice of what it was like. But now you don't get to pry around in my in my business anymore. And for me, that's a great relief. It's it's a way of maintaining privacy, which people are always like, that sounds really silly. But it doesn't to me because there are things that get left out of every book. 
Yeah, no doubt. And I feel like these distinctions are frustrating because, you know, I have written a novel recently that is autofiction, which is a maligned genre, I feel like. And it kind of bridges the divide mm -hmm. between memoir and fiction. Uh -oh. And what I always say, and, and I see over and over again, people on, uh, you know, on either side of the line, but more often, I feel like denigrating autofiction as being lesser mm -hmm. fiction than like whole, like whole cloth invention or even memoir. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, everybody who's writing a novel is writing a memoir. And everybody who's writing a memoir is writing a novel. Right. Like, can we just get over ourselves? Right. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, I can tell you why that is, I think. My theory about that is that the memoir genre has been wildly populated by women, particularly white women. So if you're thinking about writing under patriarchy, it's like, oh, women and their silly little stories. Women and their lives. Just a memoir. Right. right? Whereas, like, a novelist is someone who's writing <laughs> literature. You know, someone who's like writing this thumping sort of book that's going to change the world, the next great American novel. I think it's very, it, it's, it's very sexist in that way. And I have been on panels with like someone who's 22 years old who's written like one novel and it's a man. And then I've written like five nonfiction books and he's a writer and I'm a memoirist. And I'm like, I'm out. Yeah. <laughs> nope. So I think there's yeah. a lot of, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of sort of stereotypes around what memoir writers do, what they are. And I would say too, and Gina and I have talked about this, the writer Gina. G Gina Frangiello. Yes, yeah. my business partner and my friend still. <laughs> the two most creative people trying to run a business. Um, but we always say like, you know, if you, a lot of memoir memoirists who are women, primarily white women, is dominated by women who look like me and Gina in some ways. We're also kind of given this burden of being kind of love warriors or people who are, it sort of bridges this line between like self-help and and memoir. And that has been really hard for me. Like it's, it's, it's lessening now, but in the last decade, it was like, if you wrote a book, you were basically like inspiring or, you know, he's like, oh, I want to be like you. It's like, no, you don't. And I certainly am not writing a book about how to live your life because no one should read that. No one should read that. Like, just don't do what I did is what I would say. So I think there has been a pressure on women to not only sort of, first of all, it's it's kind of malign. Like, oh, yeah, your little life, that's really interesting. I'm sorry you had a hard time. Versus, And then also, at the same time, you know, be loving, be generous. Like, make sure you tell us how to live your li a life. Like, have a takeaway that's inspiring. And it's like, I don't have any of that. I have death. I have despair intellectual right. wrangling and so it's really weird to me when people are like yeah i felt really inspired i'm like to do what like i really don't know <laughs> like I, I that's a little alarming so, yeah. uh, i think there is a sort of it, it's a weird kind of it's a strange genre because in some ways it's like people really want to write it and read it but it's it's in some ways less respected than other forms and i think that's in part because women are the primary authors of the most popular books that we know or the most popular memoirs why do you think they are so popular um i think a little bit i mean i'll say i mean in all honesty i think it's on the sort of nefarious side, you could say it's a train wreck, rubbernecking, like, whoa, that's crappy. Let's go look over there and see what happened. How did they deal with it? But that's actually true of all narrative. You I mean, you put a character in a pressure cooker, you put them in a tight space, and it's like, oh, how are you going to get out of here? You know, so it's not so different. But I also think with memoir, especially the kinds of subjects that I like to write about, which is like death and dying, almost exclusively, <laughs> death and dying and sort of physical struggle is that people know that we're in these random incarnations. They know we're mortal, 
but and we kind of want to get close to it we don't want to quite know so it's it's almost like what horror fiction does in a way it's like let's get really close to the scary thing but then back up i mean it's why frankenstein's one of my favorite books of all time and i assign it just all the time it's because we we know that these truths of being a god of being a monster and a human we know we have all of these inside of us but horror allows us to go much, much closer to that more monster side, which sometimes, especially in that book, has a flip side effect of making the person more human. Like we're more in touch with our sort of darkness or shadow, the more human we become uh, and vice versa, right? So I, I think that, yeah, I mean, I don't know if that's an answer to your question, but I think. I mean, I think, no, I, I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me. It's better than having to experience it yourself, but it allows you to get in proximity mm -hmm. Uh, to the like really difficult stuff mm -hmm. just in case I mean I think I if I'm being honest I probably read books like that at least in part for that reason to try to prepare myself almost you know what I'm saying it's like this is eventually going to befall me it's going to befall people I love it's the nature of life right we lose everything eventually everyone eventually and so reading is a way to kind of rehearse mm-hmm Sometimes people have gone before us or they have come into contact with these things. For sure. And I mean, so I get it. I get it. And I think maybe, I mean, I, again, I don't like to make rules, but sometimes I think creative nonfiction is a great place for those kinds of stories. It is. Because people, people think like, people know coming to it that it's, uh, there's nothing, art. I mean, there's some artifice, I guess, but that it actually is rooted in lived experience yeah. it's the stakes are high the stakes are really high like i always joke that if, if someone's not dying at you know about to die or just died i'm not interested in the story well that's everybody <laughs> like that's us all of us i mean i do think too you know reading and writing about death at least for me makes me feel more connected to life because they you cannot have one without the other so you know i was never really a candidate for like a beach book i mean i tried to take how not to kill yourself on vacation and my friend was like maybe not that book and i was like the the, the clancy martin <laughs> i had him on the yeah. show he that was a that's a great book. i know i was like this is perfect for the beach like just at that one right now i'm the same hey listen i'm the same way like i i love to read things me like too, that because you know? we know it's ha yeah. we know it's going to happen and for me at least you know having been in really close proximity to death with my son but also my dad is a pastor, and so people die all the time in a, in a community, in a rural community, often violently. And I mean, I was going to funerals since I was six, and you know, some of these people had like died in a tractor, under a tractor, and it's an open casket, and you know, the mortician does what they can, but so. Where was this? In Wyoming, in rural Wyoming. So, I mean, I know, I've known that people can get their heads shattered, get hit by a bus, you know, have, you know, it's farm rural life is brutal and so i was you know we didn't have money for anything and especially not babysitters so off i'd go with my dad and i would be sitting there and he would give the service and then you know we all have to file by the casket if it's an open casket depending on what kind of service it was so i've always been kind of really in touch with death and you know maybe that's a good thing maybe it's a bad thing but i do feel like each time i've been in a situation where I'm either sitting with someone who's dying or talking with someone who's struggling with, you know, their terminally ill child, which is work that I do. I feel like I want to go out and like live, you know, not because they couldn't, but just because it's like so, so intense. And it just shows us how little time we really have. And there's a profundity to that. I mean, not like I'll go off and do bungee jumping, but it's like, 
And it's not, it's not a wildness. It's not this like dog paddling frantic. It's just like, wow, these, we really, we're all going there. Like, what am I going to do with this time? Not a carpe diem thing, but more of an awareness, like a deep observation of the world and acute attention to everything that falls into your purview. That's a gift, right? So it's kind of like whenever I'm in one of those situations, I kind of emerge kind of wide eyed, like, whoa, you know, it's, it's kind of fabulous. I mean, like, you know, I say this like partially tongue in cheek, but there's some truth to it is that I've often felt my best at funerals Mm -hmm. and it's, there's something deeply human and deeply connected and life affirming in a weird way about those moments. And also a lot of the masks drop away. A lot of the bullshit drops away. All the bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's no way to have a conversation with anyone like in the community that I work in with the parents who have kids with the same illness my son died of there's no pretense i mean and and everyone is wearing this and maybe it's like a non-mask mask like you know the newly diagnosed families like their faces just look i mean i know the look it's like they've just been exiled to like a planet that they didn't even know existed you know and they're they don't know what to do and so they're in this kind of like fresh state such a vulnerable state and it's so difficult but it's also really beautiful because the connections that happen, the intimate human connections are unbreakable, you know, like they're people I would never know otherwise. And it's like, I would take a call from that person at two in the morning and maybe not from other people that I claim to be close to. I mean, I think there is something to that. Yeah. I get that. Yeah. My son is disabled. Uh, he was born with cerebral palsy Mm -hmm. and, uh, genetic disorder and epilepsy, like just got hit with a raft of things. Mm And I'm in therapeutic environments with him, you know, where he's going to work out or whatever. And you're kind of sitting in the little cafeteria area with people that you otherwise would not be in contact with, Mm -hmm. but you're all in the same boat one way or the other. I totally know that feeling where you're like, how do I, I mean, this is wild that we're knowing that we know each other like this and we have this immediate sort of shorthand rapport. I recognize the fatigue, you know, like, I know I sort of get it. The heaviness, right. Or, and it's also made me like a more tolerant person, I think, because, you know, there's always in those communities, you know, in any community, there's someone who's really religious. And I feel like I spent my entire life extracting myself from like Christian dogmatic ways of seeing the world. And then I'm like hit with someone who's like really wearing a what would Jesus do t-shirt without irony. And I'm like, oh no, but it's like, but I'm also like, you know what? Who am I to say? If that's comforting you, great. You don't understand why, what mine, why I'm like, you know, doing obstacle courses and writing crazy wild books. Like that's my coping mechanism. You may not understand that, but I'm going to respect how you're, you're surviving this because it's hard. Yeah. Anything. I mean, if, it, if it's, if it's relatively benign and it works for you, mm-hmm. go for it. Uh, I do have to interject and say obstacle courses. <laughs> oh God. I'm such a weirdo. Like, yeah. I mean, Gina's always teasing me because she's just like, what are you doing? No, I'm all I'm all about the extreme sports. <laughs> oh, so like uh, American Ninja Warrior? No, oh, God, no, I can't oh. do that. I'm just like there, you know, like do this class where you have to go over a wall. It's like army stuff, or go over a wall and like run through some mud. And I'm not very good at it. I mean, I'm usually last. Or you know, long, long bike rides, like really hard, intense Olympic lifting. Like that for me is the thing that gets me close to probably dying, <laughs> possibly. <laughs> but also just like feeling like in my body and i think so many of these experiences like what you're describing like having a kid that you know loving a child that has so many so many obstacles 
to their own kind of well-being and and the people dumb stuff shit people say to you to your kid like it's just it's overwhelming and so for me like you know boxing was really big when i when ronan was alive i had this whole boxing gym I was like kicking the shit out of this bag for like three hours a day it was amazing that stuff helps me not kick the shit out of someone in real life when they say something dumb and the truth of that is that it helps me you know my brain calm down so that i can sort of talk about you know, ways we can flip the script so that someone's in a difficult position doesn't have to spend three hours kicking the shit out of a bag because people don't say stupid shit when you're having a hard time. Like, I my next book's called I Would Die If I Were You. I love the title. And it's because people say that to me all the time. I'm like, would you? Would you? Would you die? Would you die if you had a kid that didn't, like, conform with your ideas of what a kid would be like or childhood would be like again frankenstein like perfect example of that dynamic would you die if you lost a limb and like found a way to move again would you and you and you lost a limb i did when i was four yeah so it's right no i'm not gonna like and if i did die if i decided to die which believe me i've wanted to i definitely wanted to when my son was diagnosed i mean then i'd be weak i mean there's no way to win like you know it's like there's no way to win and so I don't know. I think I think a lot of what nonfiction can really do in terms of truth telling is to is to show like the brutality of people's, you know, misinterpretations of truth. Like people used to say to me, oh, my God, I would die if I were you. My life must be so miserable. And I thought, you know nothing about my life or my child. Like my child was a wonderful being. And yes, it was hard, but I don't regret a moment I spent with him. And he was perfect in his way. And he paid the ultimate price for being like a Buddha. And I, again, wish I could have learned the lessons he taught me in a different way. And I don't mean to say that he taught me any lessons in that cheesy way that people often do. But the reality is he completely transformed my life. And you're not, you're just different. That's what happened. So I there's think- a, Yeah, there's like a before and an after, right? Yeah. I mean, like- And you don't, I mean, the yeah. person that, that was before that is like someone I vaguely recognize, but not a lot. Yeah. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So when it comes to creative nonfiction, I feel like the conversation about it and the, like the lines of demarcation have been shifting over the past couple of decades. I feel like this is a conversation that's been ongoing yeah. and I think you can trace it to James Fry. Oh, is it Fry or Fray? I think yeah. it's Fry. James F. Uh, yeah, James. 
but he, what was it? A Million Little Pieces yeah. was his yeah. memoir. And he went on Oprah. Yes. And it became, for those people, you know, for those of listeners who are too young to remember this, no, like right. he basically went on Oprah representing himself as a memoirist. And he had this really harrowing story of addiction to tell. Right. And then it turned out that he had fictionalized a lot of it. I think he had tried to sell it as a novel. Yeah. And then when that didn't work, he sold it as a memoir. Right. right? Or something like yeah. that. Yeah. That was a huge sea change. Isn't it awful that people are young enough to like not know what that is? I'm like, yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> um, so, yeah. I mean, my first book came out like during that time when the Oprah episode was happening. And I remember my mom calling me and being like, listen, you better not have lied. You know, I was like, oh. So I was like kind of going back through the book and thinking like, OK, well, I did make composite characters. Um, I did shrink timelines, but I also didn't pretend that I lost a leg and then like didn't. And I didn't like, you know, pretend that I had a tooth pulled without anesthetic and then didn't. Like, you know, I mean, there, there were certain facts that were provable facts, you know. And what's this What's this book you're referencing? Uh, Poster Child. Yeah. Which, okay. I mean, I book is like old news but but i remember being like oh no like did i make this up and i was like okay well i made a conscious choice in one chapter to make sort of all of the courtney's and britney's and e's and ashley's that were in my high school group one girl because they were so similar to one another in their kind of awfulness that i was like we don't need five of these like we need one we need one representative of these girls and so i had one representative of the girls and i compressed time to show to show sort of the depth of my, my, what I would, the lengths I would go to to hide my body, which wouldn't have had the same resonance had I waited, like I, had I shown the first scene in the, when it actually happened and then waited to talk about it a week later. I just shoved it all into one day. But those things happened. They just didn't happen in the timeline that served the story. So I think that really is the thing, like what is serving the story? Well, lying probably never is, but, and also, if I gave, I mean, these girls, I mean, I knew them. They called me and they were like, who is this awful person? I was like, you. <laughs> like, they did not see themselves. Like, they did not, they, the truth of what they considered our interaction was very different. So I feel like, you know, Chekhov has that, I hope it's Chekhov. I've been quoting that for like a decade. It's like all memory is an interpretation. Like, we, our memories are not are not films and even if they were films like the angle of the film and what what people choose to focus on changes the narrative like stories are dynamic and evolving and so i think that's one thing people have a hard time with that idea of like well that's the buttons were red they weren't blue and it's like well is that what really what we're quibbling over that's right. silly you know yeah well i mean and it's like i mean a couple things like first of all people who nitpick about stuff like that or people who take a really dogmatic stance on objective truth in memoir versus you know in nonfiction versus uh in fiction mm -hmm. it's like have you i almost i almost want to believe that such a person has never tried to write creative nonfiction before yeah because <laughs> how, how could you ever make uh like take a stab at this and come away thinking like wow i really nailed that everything in there is fact mm -hmm. uh it just doesn't exist. I mean, you, I don't care how good of a memory you have, unless maybe you're one of these like really freakish, like photographic memory people. But I, I don't know though. 
I, I think, you know, I think people's memories are just like, I mean, my, my parents are always saying like, how do you remember that? They're always questioning me. Like, do you remember that? I'm like, well, I have all these Jesus journals so I can prove it. But also, I mean, they left an impact on me. Like I see that in my mind's eye that it happened a certain way. And often it's like, when you go back to your school, like say you go back to your grade school and when you were there, you're like, the tether balls are so big. And like all of the equipment seems enormous, right? And you go back there and you're like, oh my God, it's like a doll. It's like a doll playhouse because everything is so tiny. It's like all about perspective. So, you know, you wouldn't run a one write a scene at six years old and pretend as though that wasn't true. You would want to be like everything was big and scary, even if in reality to the adult reader, it was, wouldn't be big and scary. Like it's all about kind of point of view and context, like every story. And, and yeah, I mean, I'm sure I'm misremembering things, but you know, if you sit around a table and have five people tell you what happened the day before it's going to be five different versions like literally that's right five different versions yeah well yeah and i also there's like some scientific study that was done that i read about that has stayed with me that posits or you know the results of the study basically indicate that it, the like for memories that you uh as a you know as an individual find stickiest mm -hmm. and they cause you to tell sort of the same story, to recount the same memory over and over again. Mm -hmm. I think they found that like the story gets further and further from the truth the more times you tell it. It's like telephone. Yeah. yeah. But it's like, so it's like this thing that you, you tell yourself like, oh my God, this is one of the most profound memories of my life. Mm -hmm. And so it's this thing that you keep, but you don't even realize that you're moving further and further away from it the more you remember it right. so exactly and know. so to say that a memory is intractable is, is also problematic i think in the sense that because it does it's, it's true it evolves right if you look at a photo say if you imagine a photograph of yourself as a kid and you imagine and imagine and then you finally fall upon it you're like oh that's not at all how i saw it right but the issue with attractable narratives, which I think people who are real sticklers about like facts, 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 is that then they become stitched somehow to your identity as a person. And like the stories we tell about ourselves are not who we are. <laughs> like they're frames, they're frames around an experience. They're methods of understanding or trying to understand things that cause us pain. So they're not truthful in the sense that they, they tell you what to do, right? They're not instructive. So in some cases, like, you know, you think about some of the most extreme examples of, you know, harrowing incidents like the Holocaust, for example, like Arthur Frankel's. I was just quoting from that in my class. Or Victor, Victor Frankel. Arthur, Arthur, Victor. Gosh, I get him all mixed up. <laughs> Victor Frankenstein, Arthur Frankenstein. <laughs> so, yeah, it's like, you know, he's talking about being in a concentration camp or Eli Wiesel's night. Right. It's like there's that frame is always going to be wonky because there's no way in our sort of like as a as a as sentient hopefully moral ethical beings at our core, arguable, that we would be able to frame that experience because it doesn't make sense. It's not a bearable experience. So a frame just helps us carry it along so that we can either set it down or integrate it. It's not, it's not something that's supposed to be who we are, right? And I think that is a problem in a lot of, at least in my case, I feel like people really want to just keep attaching me to these really, really sad stories. And they are sad, but I'm hilarious. Like, I also just feel like those are part of my story, but they're not my identity. They're, they're just something I did. There's something I made, but it's not who I am. I don't know. I think there's a, there's a real mistake, I think, made between like, it's, it's kind of like conflating the I in a memoir with the person who's giving the book talk. 
and then people come up to you and want to like throw themselves their arms around you which is awkward and you're like ooh, who are you yeah like you yeah. know the person in the book because that person i have articulated and i have you know i've articulated a certain kind of person who's articulating a certain kind of story but i have gone on in the time and space to change and i am at a different space now and so that story is no longer who i am and it never was right. And even at the time you were writing it, it wasn't entirely no. you. No, That's, no. There's fluidity of self. And so like, yeah, it's something I've noticed in my life is that like however bad things are, however deep one's grief or sadness or discontent is, like you can be really, I can be really invested in some sort of grim mood, right? Oh, yeah. And then... What I what's interesting to me is how it's ju it's just unsustainable. Even if circumstances don't change, mm -hmm. like I can't keep up the darkness act. Like eventually, like one day I'll be like, wow, I'm actually like, you know, it went away. You know, and so you learn not to trust mm -hmm. trust it too much. Yeah. I guess yeah. it, it's just interesting how things don't like the whatever you you think are the conditions for your happiness don't actually happen or have to arrive in order for your mood to change. The reality is that shit's just always changing. Exactly. Well, that's that's the whole kind of like, um, there's a thinker, a psychologist and a meditation teacher I love called Tara Brock. Oh, yeah. About uh, radical acceptance and, and, and this, another Buddhist monk she quotes, I think it's Thich Nhat Hanh, I'm not saying that right. Yeah. Who's, yeah, that's it. Trust reality. But the thing is, reality is every moment is a new reality. So it's like you can only really trust what's happening right now. And, and I think I, you know, Reading that the first time, I didn't really get it, and I never really get it. I mean, I feel like I have to read Pema Chodron's books like 50 times, and I'm like, wait a minute, what? Because it's so simple that it's completely profound. Like, because we're always evolving, like every moment is a little death, right? It's like this whoop, whoop. So we can't say, oh, well, you you are the writer of this kind of book, right? I think that's why we see writers, and, and maybe nonfiction writers, but fiction writers too, who just decide to write a completely off the chain book that has nothing to do with their previous sort of literary achievements because they're just sick of being like affiliated with this one moment in their life that that has come to define who they are in a public way which has always seemed patently ridiculous to me but it's whatever it's the way people sell books i guess so blame it on capitalism i don't know and it's also how people understand each other a lot of times especially people who are at a remove from them you kind of people put people in boxes yeah. it's like oh this is the grief lady, right? Yeah. You know, or whatever it is. And it's never that simple. Never. So like for people listening, like especially people who might have a work of creative nonfiction that is in process or that is sort of percolating and they're wondering about how to conceive of the issue of truth, which, you know, we've kind of established that objective truth is a myth. There's really no such thing, but there is some fidelity. Mm -hmm to one's lived experience that you have to adhere to. You can't just m be making up tons of stuff no. whole cloth, though you can, I think you can fudge something. I feel like a lot of details do get fictionalized in a work of creative nonfiction. Of not, not out of some like sinister intention on the part of the author. A lot of times, and I, I can say this from experience because I'm working on a memoir, it's because I don't fucking remember well <laughs> enough. And so it's like, my memory is shot. And I'm like, well, this makes as much sense as whatever actually happened anyway. It's, and it's a small, it's a small brushstroke. It's not like some big, huge piece of the story yeah. that I'm fabricating, but it's like, well, for the purposes of a narrative and so that the reader holding the book has an okay time and isn't lost or something, yeah. then I've got to 
give myself a little bit of latitude. So can you speak to that? Yeah. Like just where, how, pe how are people who are working on these kinds of books best, uh, like how, how are they supposed to approach it? I mean, I do think there's an element of due diligence. Like that's what Google exists. Like remember when we had to go to the library and look stuff up, you know, if you so say you're writing about you know somewhere where you lived you lived there a long time ago you look up pictures of it you know like see see current representations of it and see how it matches up with your own memory that in itself is an interesting comparison say like i remembered these boulders as massive in this park called vitavu which is near where i grew up and then when i like went back and like saw pictures I was like Oh, they're tiny. Like, it's, this is not that big of a deal. This hike was not so epic, you know? So even just that clash of, of, you know, doing a bit of research and seeing how it does kind of fracture with how you remember is interesting. Or, you know, I remember in one, in Poster Child, I had lilacs blooming in the wrong season. I'm like, I don't know my fucking flowers. Like, whatever, I'm not a poet. I don't know birds, I don't know flowers. Like, I don't know what they're doing, and I don't know when their seasons are. But I thought to myself, okay, fair enough. Like, I could have... I could have said, when do lilacs bloom? It didn't occur to me. But that's an example of like a tiny bit of due diligence that would, because it sort of amps up what you can show as factual, amps up whatever invention you do and the emotional content of the scene. In terms of like, I think people who are working on memoirs, my biggest advice is say what you're afraid to say, because that really is where you get at the truth, the heart of what you're trying to do. Say all the things you, write all the things you don't want to write about say all the things you're afraid to say, right? And I think once you start doing that, it's so liberating, right? So I wrote a book about Frida Kahlo, um, my last book, and I was petrified to write that book because it's nasty. Like, I am a nasty, nasty lady. I'm not the grief lady, I'm just nasty lady. And I'm mad at everybody and jealous and mean. And like, and I thought, oh God, I can't write this. And then I thought, oh, what should I, what would I tell my students? Say, go say all the things you're afraid to say. And it was like, great, nothing happened, of course, because no one cares, <laughs> really. <laughs> but also, it was really amazing to just be like, wow, I had really grabbed onto that as something I could not say. Like, there's nothing, that's what I love about nonfiction is there's, you can say whatever you want, right? There's nothing you can't say, but you need to say it well. There's that. Like, you need to say it beautifully, you need to say it powerfully. And like, you know, don't make huge glaring manipulative errors like James Fry did, which is to basically 100% lie. Like that's different. Like again, there was someone who wrote a book, some dumb person, ooh, someone that wrote a book and pretended they were in a gang, but they weren't. And it was like, well, that was dumb. Like not the, maybe the people you wanna make angry and also just like, you're, what? Like everybody has an interesting story. Everybody can find, we're all human beings. We're all in these weird bodies. Like we're all gonna die. Like you don't need to make things up to make yourself more interesting. You don't need to have had a horrible childhood. You don't need to have had someone die. You don't need to be dying. We're all dying anyway. You need to be, have like a really acute, acute observation of the world around you and allow your attention to be arrested by things in your world. And if you do that, you'll be writing creative nonfiction naturally instead of trying to be like, mm, you know, mm, well, the well, that let, that's a great, I mean, it's a great distinction that we have to, we have to make. There is a line. Yeah. Like there, there is such a thing as a, a little bit of invention in creative nonfiction. There are going to be amalgamated characters or people, mm -hmm. you know, just for the purposes of keeping the narrative focused and making sure the reader stays oriented. Like these sorts of things happen in creative nonfiction, but it's important for people listening to, to understand like the difference between the kinds of uh, inventive 
aspects of creative nonfiction that are acceptable and the kinds that aren't. Yeah, exactly. It's like, I mean, he was writing to make money. I think that's also the intention there. The intentionality was he wanted to sell a book. That was his main intention. I have no judgment about that. You know, I'm always, I mean, I'll, I'm like, where's the money? Like we're all, yeah. that, right. There's I'm right. problems about that or trying to be some pretentious person who's like, let's do the art and not make money. That's not it. But it's like, you have to, when you're sitting down to write creative nonfiction, you want to think to yourself, like, why am I writing this? Like, why does it matter to me? Because I can tell you, it's not going to matter to anyone if it doesn't matter to you. And it has to matter to you in a way that's beyond your own self-interest, like because I want to make money and I want to be rich and famous and I want people to love me. None of those things are going to happen. And if they do, they won't be as as great as you thought they were. Those things have never happened to me, but like I think they would not be as great. <laughs> let's just test. Let's not test the theory yet. Right? What? Why does it matter to you? And who are you writing it for? So it used to be like when I was coming up in the writing world back in, as my daughter says, the 19th century. It was the 90s. Um, you know, it was basically like everyone is your audience, like write for everyone, like everyone should be able to pick up your book and get something out of it. Well, nope. Like, I don't, I don't, I know my audience, I know who I'm writing for, and it's not everybody. And that's okay with me. It's like, you, you can't get along with everybody, you don't want to date everybody, you don't want to marry everybody, you don't want to live in every house you ever see. Why would you think that your book is going to appeal to every single person who picks it up? That is ludicrous. I think it's the exact opposite of everybody should be able to, it's like, I think books are so specific. Some of them have a broader appeal and mm -hmm. like have, you know, a vibrational frequency that appeals to mm -hmm. millions of people or whatever. There is such a thing as that. But when it comes to really specific literary fiction or literary nonfiction, creative nonfiction, I think increasingly so, it feels like each book has its own little micro niche. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I wanna ask you, cause I've had this feeling like I published a book that found its little micro niche and I get lovely Aww. letters from people. Not like every day, but like, you know, often enough, to, I'm like, that's enough for me almost. Mm -hmm. uh, and I have to believe with the work that you've done, uh, you know, the, the books that you've published, that you must have similar experiences where people f for whom the, those books are for. Yeah. It's so specific it's so that they specific. must be so they must be so grateful and they must write to you. They right? do. I mean, I've got I get a lot of really beautiful letters from parents who've lost children or in the hospital with with parents with children who are dying and and that's why I mean that's why I wrote the book. You know, you write you write a book especially about your, you know, your lived experience that if you were going to if you're like me or you and you're like, "Oh, books have been part of my life. They've comforted me, they've excited me, they've framed experience for me." I'm going to go to a bookstore and look for a book that's going to help me through this shitty time. And there's nothing. That's when you write a book, right? I mean, because it, there's someone else out there like you who needs to read it. Like you're not so unique, right? That, that someone isn't going to want to read that. Now, I, I have gotten some interesting hate mail, which is always a real um, fun time, you know, from people who read it and are really, you know, offended or, or horrified by the things I read. About what? About, you know, writing about my son or... Um, you know, uh, I get a lot of creepy kind of sexual deviant people who are like really obsessed with amputee women who, who want to get to know me. And I'm like, okay, no. So, you know, people who are like living in their parents' basement and like don't come out um, before COVID. I mean, I kind of, that's mean, but it's like, come on. I mean, so, you know, you, you get, or like if I wrote, I wrote once about reproductive rights and I still get mail from, from people who are like, you know, you're going to hell and so is your son. I was just like, okay, guess we'll see you there. <laughs> right. fun place. So, so there is a kind of, but yeah, I mean, I feel like, you know, when I get a letter from someone um, that is, is sort of 
you know, it's, you know, I have gotten these letters and, and, and they, they're the ones that matter the most to me. They're like, I read your book and I decided not to die and today. And I was like, well, that, great. If that's what I'm doing is keeping people in the world for one more day. And I'm not saying I'm doing that single-handedly. I'm just saying like, there are books I've read and I'm like, okay, like today, today is not the day. Right. Yeah. Yeah. If, you're, if that's the kind of contribution you want to make. And for me, I think especially nonfiction writing is an act of service to the world. Like you cannot just do it for yourself. Like, yes, it feels good. Yes. A writing day is a best day ever. Best day ever. You know, it's like from Barbie, but there is, but if it has to mean something to someone else too, you have to make it compelling to someone else. Okay. So two, two points. First of all, uh, it's worth underlining. You know, you've talked about saying the thing that embarrasses you or that you're ashamed of, writing the things you desperately wish to not share with the world because you, you're scared, you know, but those are precisely the things that tend to resonate the most mm -hmm. with readers. And I think that operating from that sort of uh, philosophical angle can sometimes make a person mistakenly believe that if they just sort of barf out, barf out all the secret truths onto the page, that that will be enough. And what you just said, which is important, is that it has to be palatable to a reader. Exactly. Like not only do you want to go to those places, but you have to then, this is where like the art and craft of it comes in. You have to sort of deliver it in a way that makes the experience compelling to a reader, entertaining to a reader yeah. in some yeah. way, if, yeah. that's a, if that's a way to put it. So that's one point I want to make. And then I want to make the second point before I forget, which is that I have often seen it said that people who write in an autobiographical mode, whether it's in memoir or autofiction, are somehow self-indulgent, oh, yeah. self-obsessed, that they don't have, you know, the imaginative capability to get outside of themselves because their head is so far up their own ass. I mean, you see all these different things. And it's like, that offends me as a writer, but even more so as a reader. Mm -hmm. Because when I read a book that is in an autobiographical mode where a person is really sort of bearing their soul and going into these difficult places artfully and is telling the story, it is such a relief to me. And I wind up feeling so grateful to this person for doing that. It's a, uh, it seems selfless, yeah. like, like as you said, and that I, I need to underline that because no, it drives important. me crazy. It's important because like there's a lot of things that we could do that would help the world that is not writing. <laughs> Probably almost everything, right? Um, and I know that when I first started writing, I had worked as a relief worker, which was not the profession for me for a lot of different reasons. But at least it felt like its intentionality was, I mean, there is a little bit of a savior complex there, which makes me cringe. But I wanted to do something that would like change something. Like, turns out relief work wasn't that in my experience. It wasn't really changing anything. And it was hard. It was too hard for me. But I didn't want to just go and do something else just to make money or be famous and be loved, which would all, you know, those are all non, I don't have judgment on people want those things, just that you're not going to get it from, from writing or you shouldn't get it from writing. You need to find other outlets like from yourself to get that stuff from. But yeah, it's like you don't get to just say, oh, this is exactly how it happened. And if it's totally not readable, that's not art. That's just your uncle Bob who tells a really bad story every Thanksgiving at the table. And you're like, when will this end? That's a Jesus journal That's entry. A, that is a Jesus <laughs> journal. Or like, and then, and then, like the tyranny of the end then. So like what I'm talking about in this craft book that I'm writing are things that I've, you know, really like practical kind of 
I can't do geometry, but I think of it as literary geometry where you're like, okay, well, thinking in threes. Like if you have, you know, you're talking about something that happened to you or the impact on you, do three beats in a row, right? Or, you know, I have an exercise I take students through where I'm like, window to the world. Like, and this comes from Frankenstein when he's like, the monster's like, I'm on the outside of the window. Everyone loves each other. Why can't I go there and play the ukulele too? You know, he's sad. So you look into someone's life and you, you imagine like your life from the outside. And then you imagine looking out the window from the p perspective of your current life and what's out there. And then you imagine as like a portal to other places, like these concentric circles that we're always in, like I'm in this room, but outside there's like a subatomic desert and outside the subatomic desert, there's other states and there's the world. Like you have to situate yourself in a, in a way that allows you to write from a grounded, like embodied perspective. And another mistake people make, I think, a lot in nonfiction is just like, it's the Jesus Journal all over again. Like, the Jesus Journal was just like what happened, which was nothing, basically. I was 16, zero things happened. There's no concrete or sensory detail, nothing. Like, there's no sight, sound, smells. It's just all like, so people, like, getting really specific about like, okay, well, you're sitting in this room and you're having this, someone comes home and says, I don't want to be married to you anymore. Well, that's sad, okay. Where's the room? What is the light like? What time is it? What is that person wearing? What are you wearing? Like, you know, what what is the dog doing in the other room? Like, what's happening over there? Like, you know, just scenes. And that comes from all narrative, right? And then it's interesting what you're saying about letters and diaries, because sometimes I feel I have my students do this exercise where I'm like, write a letter. Because when you're writing to someone else, you immediately imagine a reader. So you're not so up your own butt, right? If you read like Kafka's letters, I mean, he's totally up his own butt. And they're still amazing because he's imagining someone at the other end of those letters. First of all, who's dead, which is weird. But he's imagining their response, even though they never wrote him back because they're dead. Like, he's just talking to them as if he cares about them. And he's trying to say, oh, here I am at this asylum. I didn't get the right blanket. And you're like, oh, my God, who cares? But, like, then he goes on to describe the blanket. You're like, that's the most beautiful description of a blanket I've ever heard in my life, you know, because it's concrete and sensory and grounded. Like, if you show somebody how something smells or you show them how it looks, you tell them how it smells, you, how it feels, they will follow you anywhere. Like Kafka's letters are the perfect example of that. That dude is talking only about himself. It is goes on and on and it's so riveting. Not hmm. this journal. Well, but what, what you're saying basically is that there are like storytelling responsibilities incumbent upon the writer of creative nonfiction yes. that are not in time. I mean, what you're, it sounds to me like it's not very dissimilar to what is incumbent upon a writer of fiction. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like the same stuff applies almost mm -hmm. with some slight variations. Yeah. Like that's what fiction writers do too. They bring you in, they appeal to all the different sensory, mm -hmm. you know, sight, sound, smell, whatever, to kind of make things mm -hmm. feel fully dimensional. And then obviously you've got to, you know, as a writer of creative nonfiction, you have to find for the reader some meaning or at least start pointing in the direction of some deeper meaning and deeper understanding. It can't just be like a just the facts regurgitation. Yes, exactly. I mean, or, or like what I was saying, like Rob Roberts, the writer Rob Roberts had this great quote. I don't know if it's his or not, but I want to credit him just in case it is. It's like the, the memoirs are a mirror. Like you're holding the mirror up for the, re for the reader to understand themselves, less so like the, the person who's writing it, right? 
I, I mean, I think that's absolutely true. And and what you're talking about there with fiction writing is something that's actually like a from genre fiction, right? Is world building, like you're responsible for building a world in nonfiction too. And and I I sort of see the the difference in how that gets created. If you think of a tornado, like our lives, we, we sort of, things happen to us, chaos hits us, right? What, and that's, so you're inside this tornado and you're like, oh God, there's a stick, I see a cow, a chair, there's my best friend, like I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to make meaning from whatever is in the tornado that I didn't choose, right? So in fiction, you drop that tornado on someone else <laughs> and then you choose what goes in it and then they have to make the choices about how to go on inside their own tornado. So it's like, that to me is a big distinction. We still have to, you know, we put pressure on our characters, it's just a different kind of pressure, and we still need to know, like, people are like, well, it doesn't really matter, like, where I was when this happened. I'm like, but it does, because we can't imagine abstractions. We can only imagine things we feel in our bodies. Like, you don't, if someone comes up to you and is like, you're a piece of shit, you don't start analyzing it. You feel it wherever shame registers for you as heat in your chest or like coldness in your hands or whatever, you don't think, you just feel. And so I think the big thing people often miss in creative nonfiction in terms of truth telling is like, if you can really get us to the place where that happened and show us how you felt and show where how you're moving around just as you would in fiction, we, it's almost like we don't care if it's true, right? 100%. We just care that like, that's how you remembered it, like literally remembered it for us. And now we can learn something from it or in reflection, like, oh, wow, that teaches me something about how it feels to lose a child or how it feels to um, get a terminal diagnosis. And when you're 25 or whatever it is, like we want to know those things because they're real. And so but to make them real, we have to embody them. Yeah, I mean, like what you're talking about uh, brings to mind like a quote from Steve Almond that I've repeated countless times on this show before, which is slow down where it hurts. And, you know, the reader, it's interesting because the writer and the reader are kind of at cross purposes when it comes to this, like, especially when you're writing creative nonfiction, you're working from real lived experience. It's very grueling mm -hmm. to go into those really difficult moments mm -hmm. and to have to kind of take a granular mm -hmm. approach to recounting them mm -hmm. for the reader. Mm -hmm. And yet I know well enough from my own reading experience that that is exactly <laughs> where you want things yeah. to slow down. You want the gritty details, like you want the sensory experience, you want it to happen in slow motion. And I've made the mistake writing to rush through those things or to move too quickly through those things, which is I think a very human yeah. impulse. It's almost like being in a hypnotic state with binaural beats or something, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like you have, to, you have to go all the way in in order to integrate whatever it is that you want to carry it. Like, the reader can't really carry it unless they really know how heavy it is, right? I mean, it's like when people, you know, in, in fiction, it's, you know, I was working with one student and I'm like, well, this person dies in the narrative, but no one cares because like we don't know who they are. Like you can't lead with like this character's so-and-so person dying. That's not enough, sadly. Like we have to know why that person matters. We have to know why this weight is so hard to carry. Um, and, and, you know, there's, there's someone wrote an article, I don't remember who it was, about, you know, we talk too much about trauma and literature. And I just think that's actually the reverse is true. I think people hold all these things so in different ways in their bodies. And the biggest challenge in nonfiction is to bring them out in a way that, that gives people hope, but also doesn't sugarcoat things, right? And by hope, I mean 
maybe I will live this day and the next day and maybe I won't the next. Like the hope is not is not a big house, just to be clear, a big paycheck, a perfect partner and awesome vacations every year. If that were true, you know, that'd be awesome. But that's not that's not like that's not the end goal. And I really do think that a lot of people when they get into writing think it's like becoming like a, an actor, which is also not true for most actors, even when they get there. So it's like you really have to show us, you really have to show us the beats of the journey in this very kind of, I wouldn't say voyeuristic, just visceral. Visceral and voyeur, visceral quality and voyeuristic quality are different. I mean, I think that's very true. You don't have to take us, you don't have to make it feel so cringy that we can't read it, but we have to feel, again, the emotional truth of why we need to read it. Well, and I think like that, that experience that you're describing where you come away from a book changed and it's like life affirming. Yes. Even if it's, even if it's like awful, the story that, you know, or like there's some part of it, like some core of the story is just awful because it's a story of loss and, you know, trying to recover from that loss or whatever. Uh, if you're anything like you or me, I read something like that. And it gives you, I come away with like a deeper appreciation and maybe a sense of like restored priorities or something. Yeah. <laughs> it's very easy. It's very easy in this life to get those things jumbled up. Yeah. You know, you get caught up in the static. And I think a good work of creative nonfiction, especially if it's dealing with difficult mm -hmm. stuff, has a way of kind of clearing the decks yeah. you just go oh wait what a minute why, why was i so worried about stupid bullshit at my day job or whatever mm -hmm. and it's like oh this person <laughs> you know has been to the brink and mm -hmm. you know kind of took me there mm -hmm. and uh now i'm back and yeah. it's hard to kind of proceed with your day and be obsessed with trivialities True. at least for a time yeah. i know we, we we tend to backslide eventually but it gives us at least a moment yeah. of perspective yeah, I mean, I, I also think it's important to say, too, that the best creative nonfiction is about, you know, and, you know, activating that feeling of empathy. And like, because we've been taken there, it's almost like we've been there almost like we're almost we're there adjacent. Right. It's, versus pity, where it's like if you don't get concrete and granular, people are like, oh, my God, that's such a sad story because they only know the surface. They don't right. know all the things that are underneath because nothing is just purely sad. That's not possible. Right. So unless it's like a Law and Order episode, then it's totally it's possible. But like, you know, it, most things have all these different levels to them. So it's like, then not only does that activate empathy, which we need more of because empathy is connection, it reduces pity, which is disconnection. We're like, oh, that'll never happen to me. Like that chaos, like that poor person, like that's not gonna be me. It's like, well, buckle up because it probably will be in a different way at some point, right? And compassion, like for yourself, for other people, like. There's just so little of that. And listen, I'm no, I'm no love warrior. I don't mean to sound like I'm some life coach. Ooh, God forbid. But like, I do think like you're, what you're saying, it's like, we do not know what people go through and that we don't know how they express it. And like, this happens all the time, like in our personal relationships where someone's like, you get a bust up with someone, you had no idea what they were dealing with because they didn't share it. And it was just a miscommunication, right? And instead of being reactive and activating, activated by that, you know, a story, you, you tell a different story. Like we're always revising these stories. I think that about that all the time. Like I've worked on a couple of books with people who've, who grew up in really difficult impoverished circumstances. And it's like, you know, yes, they went on to do great things, but it's also like, 
I don't feel sorry for them that they that they had those difficult experiences. I just want to know what it was like for them. Like that's the big difference. Like to say to someone like in my case, like oh, I'm so sorry that your life is so shit or whatever people said to me or like I'm so sorry your son died. I'm like don't be sorry. You know, just be curious. Like do you want to know about him? And usually they're like, no, because <laughs> it's too sad for them because it's a picnic for me. You know, like be curious. That curiosity is like the biggest solve for so many of these like craft issues. Like if you're curious about your experience and someone else's, what their reaction to it might be, you're going to write better. Well, I mean, that, that, that's a really interesting point is that people don't want, I think maybe especially writers, don't want people to feel sorry for them or to feel whatever it might be. They want to feel understood. <clears throat> yep. Like that's it. It's like, you know, writing to be understood and maybe writing to help other people feel mm. a better understanding of themselves and others, wh whether they have a shared exper life experience or not. Exactly. Um, I want to ask you about plot. Mm-hmm. What? Because... I'm just kidding. <laughs> Because, you know, there are in works of really good creative nonfiction a lot of similarities in terms of how a story is structured. Yeah. You know, you, you often hear this like, wow, I was reading this work of creative nonfiction. It reads like a novel. Yeah, it, this memoir reads like a novel. And so are there distinctions? Like, are there things that novels do structurally or plot wise? I mean, that mm, I, I mean, I think it's it's true for both fiction and nonfiction that you want to have a really compelling beginning, right? You want to have in each section, you want to have an immersive beginning and a sort of open ending that like is a baton toss to the next thing that happens. So you have a causal chain of events that sort of continues on and the person is transformed along the way, right? Um, I would say in, in nonfiction maybe, and, and I mean, this is also, there's caveats to this in fiction writers who, who do some of this, like Milan Kundera, the newly late Milan Kundera used to do a lot of reflection in his novels, right? Well, in, in nonfiction, you really do have to have a scene and then you kind of have to say, not what you learned from it, but you have to have a kind of reflective block where the, the writer is, is outside of the lifetime of the scene saying like, later I would realize, or this would become important later, which, which just would be a little bit more awkward in a novel. Like in a novel, I think you're reading more for the surprise of plot. And in nonfiction, you know, unless someone becomes a werewolf and then it's fiction, or they really think they're a werewolf, like we know the beats of a, of a human person's story, right? We know what go, we, we all age, we all, you know, things happen to us, we interact with chaos. But I think that reflective bit helps us to say, okay, that's, that's why they made that frame. Like that's what that scene was designed to frame, that part of their experience that they didn't understand until they wrote the book. And now I get it. And now I'm ready to move on to the next stage and see what else they learn. Right. Whereas I think a novel is a little bit more plot driven, I would say. And that I think because I've, I've been writing fiction lately, too. And um, and sometimes I'm like, oh, why am I what? There can't be a flashback yet. I haven't done anything like. So I think nonfiction does kind of that layering is different. And a lot of it is reflection. So and that's not exposition. That's literally reflection, which is like deeply related to the scene that's just ended. Yeah. Making meaning and meaning. When it comes to sitting down to write a work of creative nonfiction, maybe in particular when it's one that is dealing with tough stuff, I think there can be an issue of timing sometimes. Mm -hmm. Like I kind of went through this where it was like, man, I need some perspective on this before I know what I want to say. Mm -hmm. And 
then there's the other part of it where it's like, listen, you're never going to maybe get this perfect and gift wrapped in your, in your mind. You know what I'm saying? There's not going to be some sort of neat, clean, perfect, crystalline understanding of this thing. So you might as well just start. Yeah. yeah. So, but I mean, for people listening, somebody might be like, God, I've always wanted to write this story about, you know, this childhood trauma, just, mm-hmm. just say, you know, this is this thing that's just been weighing me down my whole life. I have a story to tell. And yet I don't feel like I've gone through enough therapy to have it sorted out. Or I, like in writing about your son, in writing about, uh, you know, your uh, missing limb, like these difficult things, like, did you jump in to the project of writing about it before you sort of had a, f- a full sense of what book or what story you were trying to write? That's a great question. Very different experiences. So for Poster Child, I never wrote about anything that had to do with disability and didn't even admit to having one until I was about 25. I was just like expert at not being revealed, which of course everyone knew. It's so stupid, but whatever. I was just terrified of it. So by that time, I had had no therapy because we didn't do therapy in the 80s in my family. That was like, that was like when you get a straight jacket. That's you have Jesus. Yeah. You have Jesus. I have my Jesus journal. <laughs> I have my Jesus journal and my crazy Jesus friends. Um, and so, which weren't helpful, it turns out, weirdly. Um, so, by the time I got writing it, I had I had a significant distance from it, but I did not have a lot of emotional distance from it because I couldn't believe I was actually writing about it. Like it really kind of like rocked my world a little bit. However, I had written a little bit about just disability as a as a, theolog- a theological studies major in college where I had read this book. You went to you went to Harvard Divinity School. I did, I but in college I also studied religion like a big fat nerd, which is, you know, don't do that. That's not in the life coach package. Um, <laughs> I, I read this book called The Disabled God by Nancy Eastland, who's now now no longer living. And she talks about, you know, Jesus, you know, not, not the one in my journal, but Jesus being the ultimate idea of like a broken body is elevated, right? Um, is is like a liberation theology for people with disabilities. And it blew my mind. And so that kind of was the first book I read, which was a very academic book. I think it was like her PhD thesis or something that made me think, oh, you know, that's, I don't want to write that stuff, but I do want to write about this experience. I think it's important. So that was a very different writing experience. And it was, it was, I mean, I was like in my twenties and agonizing and like, you know, whatever. I mean, I, it, it was way too slow that book. And then when I wrote the book about my son, that was something I hadn't expected. Which is which is called The Still Point yeah. of the Turning World. The Still Point of the Turning World. The original title was Dear Dr. Frankenstein because I've always had a Frankenstein obsession and I, I just really felt like I was living that story in this weird, very gothic way, but in, a, in Santa Fe where the light was really bright, but it was like Frankenstein all over again. So that just, I was just had like a, I mean, you could say it was like a hypomanic six months where I just was like, like hypergraphia, which is a documented kind of brain split. And I was just so wild with grief. It was the only thing I could do. It was the only thing I could do. I mean, I was writing all of the time and I had no perspective, but I did have like, I, it wasn't perspective, but every, everything I saw had some kind of meaning. I felt like my head had become this weird magnet and like everything I saw had more meaning than it would have had if I weren't in such a deep grief state, right? I was just like, like everything was just split open and nothing, nothing didn't matter. Everything mattered. And so I was trying to like make sense of that. And that's where the impulse to write came. But I didn't have any, it was, there was so much heat. I mean, I'm never going to read that book again, but I have had to read it in 
in certain contexts. I'm like, oh my god, it's it's like someone is on fire. Like it's just so fiery, and that's the experience of writing it. It like matches the experience of writing it, and it's just like I had so much I wanted to say that wasn't just about Ronan, but was just like, it was basically like my fuck you world. Like you know what, you you just fucked me again. I'm just gonna write whatever I want however I want, and I'm going to talk about Sumerian myths and weird ancient languages because no one's going to read it, and fuck you! you know? <laughs> so it, New York Times New York Times bestseller, wasn't it? Yeah, rage! Yeah. <laughs> it was all rage. It was rage. And I have to say that, and I'm, I don't think I'm a reactive person in my real life, but when I get really angry, I write really well because I'm so focused, right? So, so that was a very different experience. And then the next book, I had some perspective. But again, it starts with these moments of, like, Sanctuary started with a conversation I had with my friend's then nine-year-old son. And then I took my daughter to this butterfly museum where these, like, massive butterflies, it was, like, from Lord of the Rings. They, were, like, they weren't that big, but they were, like, floating around in space. I was like, what is happening? Like, I just had this, like, I was like, this is affecting me in a way I don't understand. So I have to write about it. Or when I went to Frida Kahlo's museum, finally, and I saw this, that she had their, her legs were behind glass, like her legs and her corsets, which she hid from everyone. And they're like guarded by these very stern security guards with guns. And they're just there. And I had this, I just was like stopped in my tracks, right? Wait, her, her actual legs? Yeah. And corsets and like, they were all behind glass. And I hadn't expected that. I hadn't expected we'd see them. And it was like, it just opened and people were like, mm. I was pregnant, like my son had just died, and I was just arrested. I was arrested at these these images, and I was like, obviously I know why I was arrested, but I was like, but there's something else here. And then Gina Frangelo, we were in Mexico teaching, like, I don't know, eight, nine months later, or maybe a year later, and she's like, you need to write that. You call it the angry death essay. And so I did. I wrote an angry death essay in, in Mexico, and that became the book. Because it was just, but but each of those, each of those sort of, subsequent books after the first two or whatever like whatever yeah two is that they were like moments in time where I was just really open to I was really present and I was like this means something and I don't know what it is so now I'm gonna go write and figure it out so that it was like a it was like a curiosity like or with sanctuary when people kept saying to me like oh your life has been resurrected I was like oh that that's in the Jesus journal but that is not my life <laughs> like it's not been <laughs> resurrected and also just little point in the first the first gospel that was finished in the bible which is the gospel of mark which was written hundreds of years before the other ones there is no resurrection they made it up so <laughs> so people kept saying that to me or you're so strong and you're so resilient and i was like what are you talking about i'm a mess so you know it's just it's just being aware of like what's going on in your life and again like being really curious right you cannot be a writer of any kind if you're not curious about other people, about the world, about the way things work, or about how people live and the, inequ you know, the, the inequity in our systems. Like, I really feel like you can't, because those are the things that fuel the best works of literature, in my opinion. So what about in your experience of writing creative nonfiction, have you learned about like, what not to do? Are there mistakes that you've made or like repeatedly made? Oh, yeah. That you sort of finally like, oh, yeah, I can't do that. Or, oh, you know what? When I do this, it actually undermines things. <laughs> yeah. uh, like, what are some of the, like, just yeah. some red flags, like for people who are working, like uh, that they should try to avoid? Like, don't repeat yourself. Like, my editor used to be like, we know, you know, she'd be like, red, <laughs> bad, like, 
Thank you. <laughs> I come from an academic background. Like whenever I didn't know how to make something compelling, I would like turn into like theology person. I'd be like, in 18, you know, and the, uh, she'd be like, no, information dump. It's like that scene. It's always like that moment in a Law & Order episode where they're like, did you know that in whatever year this many people were assaulted? It's like exposition ed. So try to avoid exposition ed. If you don't really know how you feel about certain information, don't do an info dump. Like, I'm like the queen of the info dump. So I've had to really watch that because I love my research. It's so Okay, so, but let me interrupt you because info dump, I understand that impulse, especially when you're trying to like, it's the part of like the reflective part of writing creative nonfiction where you're trying to find meaning. Like how to walk the line between like, I can imagine an editor being like, you know what, it's better if you try to incorporate some of this info into a scene where we have characters, move, you know, we have people moving in space and time and, yeah. you know, takes the reader into a dimensional sort of imaginative space rather than just like being lectured at. Yeah. And yet sometimes there is a need, I think, in creative nonfiction to sort of like do the scene and then, like you said earlier, talk about what it meant and kind of be retrospective mm -hmm. about it. Like it, the balancing act between those two things, right? Like how do you, I guess you just got to get to the point where you know how to, you intuit it. You do it enough times and you sort of feel your way to where you yeah. get. Yeah, I think, I think you have a, to have a good editor. Like, you know, for example, in Sanctuary, my third book, I have this whole thing about Viking ships. And she was like, oh my God, for fuck's sake, I can't read anything more about this fucking wood. I'm like, wait, <laughs> like there's so much metaphor. She's like, we got it. And she's like, why yeah. are you interested in this anyway? And then I had, of course there was a story that I had forgotten when I was a student in Dublin in 90 something, they had found like a shard of a Viking ship in the apartment building, like underneath the apartment building next to me. And so they were, they were taking the whole thing down to find this tiny little shard of a ship. And I was like, that's why I've always had like, what the fuck is that, the deal with that? It's like, that's how strong that wood was because it was able to warp. She's like, okay, well then just talk about that, but stop this shit with shipbuilding. I don't care. Um, <laughs> but it took me a lot of that sort of like research to get into it. Like I had to really know what was going on with the wood, but like the reader doesn't need to maybe know all of the little steps you took to get to the end point all the time especially when it comes to like external research, which I happen to live, you know? Yeah, so yeah, yeah, I think that you need a good editor. Like no one should be sending their book anywhere without sending it to an editor. That's not someone who's just going to praise you. And th this is work that you do, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. you know, you do with Gina for Cersei Consulting where you kind of do, what do you call it? Developmental uh, edits. Developmental editing. Yeah. Developmental editing where you take a person's like manuscript and work on it with them. Yes and try to get it into shape so that they can then submit yeah. it to editors yeah. for publication. Yeah. And, and Gina is a genius editor. She's my first editor because she's, she's totally does not pun pull any punches. So we have this kind of good cop, bad cop thing where I, I am kind of the cheerleader and she's just like, no. <laughs> and then, you know, but it, it's like, so we have a, you need both those people. We're going to be like, oh, this is really great. This has potential. And you also need someone to be like wrong way. Um, and sometimes I'm like that too. I don't mean to sound like Gina's a bad cop, but like you, you, <laughs> do, need, you do, I think it helps to have two people because you know, there are also, unfortunately in nonfiction and in fiction, there are still a lot of people who use a ton of ableist language and a ton of ableist, like, you know, I was tone deaf or crippled by anxiety or paralyzed by fright. And like, because we're so used to hearing those on TV and all over the place, like, you, it takes two people to catch that. Like I always catch, Gina catches it too now, and she probably would have more than other editors, but a lot of people 
are still kind of trapped in these, um, the ways that we talk about things in nonfiction because it's from real life. It still shocks me when I get a manuscript that's like, I was paralyzed by fright. I'm like, no, no, you weren't. That's wrong. <laughs> right. So, or like, yeah, like the word lame. I mean, there's all these different so able, there's ableist language. I, my eyes have been open to that over the past several now years. It's, it's so, it's everywhere or, um, like spastic or something, or like, I mean, there, I mean, it, this list goes on, right? Um, or comparing like a loss to losing a limb. It's like, dude, that's like not a thing. Like that's like apple, orange, and not even fruit, like no. So I think that, you know, we need that in our real lives because we are taking in what we read, we, which we, you know, we're magnets, like we're taking in what we read and see. And so we need to have someone from the outside being like, and it's not like a PC corrector. It's basically just like, that's the wrong use of the word. Like I had some woman kick back at me once. She's like, no, but I was really paralyzed. And I was like, no. She's like, no, it means you can't move. And I'm like, no, it means you're unable to move. Like you're physically unable to move. It doesn't mean that you can't move temporarily. We had this like argument. I'm like, we're not having this argument. I'm <laughs> But like, it, you know, so people really are attached to these ways of framing the world. And I think that's another lesson for nonfiction. It's like, write what you're afraid to do to write, but also don't be attached to like how you see yourself in the work. Like you, and, and to not see yourself to your point earlier in the talk, like no one is a real hero or a heroine. No one, no one gets to be the hero or heroine of their own story unless they're complicated. If you're, if you are perfect and really awesome, then you're not interesting. Like you have to show the parts that are hard to show or no one will believe you and they shouldn't because it's a lie. That's the lie. All right. Well, before I let you go, I want to talk about endings. Okay. Because uh, I think maybe with creative nonfiction and may, may, I guess literary fiction is sort of the same way. The endings are maybe not quite as definable as they may be in say genre fiction, you yeah. know, where yeah, like yeah. the murder, the murder is solved, yeah. the lovers reunite, you know? And so, like just thinking about uh, Still Point as an example, like writing towards an ending in a work of, like like you said, rage and like maternal grief and just like the the rawest of raw. I can imagine being a writer approaching a project that's like in some way of a similar vibration, mm -hmm. but being like what am I writing toward? Yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Like, what, what is the, is there going to be an epiphany? Am I just writing into the abyss? Like what? Yeah. Like, it, like how do we as writers of creative nonfiction conceive of, and I'm going to go back to the word plot. You know, if you're putting together geometrically a story that a reader can enjoy or find compelling and want to like turn the pages through and get to the ending, what responsibilities are incumbent upon such a writer when it comes to, delivering a satisfying ending. Is it the same kind of thing or the same kind of responsibilities that are incumbent upon a writer of fiction or is it different? I mean, you know, there, I think in fiction, it's easy to go wrong in terms of the false epiphany where all of a sudden the characters, like the, the scales fall away from their eyes and they ride off into the sunset. Although in genre fiction, that's often happens, right? I mean, the, in the case of the still point of the turning world, like I remember my editor called me and she was like, I really have to have a conversation with you. And I'm like, whatever, I have, I, I, I will talk about anything. I'm unshockable. And she was like, just tell me what it is. And she said, well, editorially, this book should end with your, with Ronan's death. And I said, no, I won't do that. She's like, well, it's just, 
if you think about it from a narrative perspective, and of course she was like being so sensitive and stuff, and I was just, and, and I was basically like, I'll find a different way to do it. And I was very adamant about it. Why? I wanted him to be alive when the book ended. When the book was published, he was dead. He had died. But like, I wanted him to, to hold that space, which was kind of in keeping with the title, which is not what I wanted. That's not the title I wanted. But then of course I was grateful for it at this point. Because <laughs> I was like, I want it to be like this stillness, the stillness of like, of, of incarnation at that moment, at that time, like these two people sort of frozen and, and like distilled in time, because that's, that's the only thing I have is that those, those, those distilled moments and they're, they're limited. Right. And I want it to feel like a stop, but not a death. And so we managed to do it and she helped me so much to pull it off. And maybe I didn't pull it off, but like, I was adamant that I could not and I would, in doing it at that time, I really couldn't imagine ever writing his death. And of course, like five years later, I did write about it, but I wasn't ready to do it because it felt, in, you know, it felt too raw to me at the time, which seems weird since I was writing about everything was raw, but that was just so final and it hadn't happened yet. And I wanted the book to exist in a sphere where he would always be living. And so that's what, that was really what I wanted for the, for the end. And, um... Yeah, I got my wish, but but you're absolutely right. It's like those kinds of considerations for endings. Like I wanted to have an open ending in some ways. Like, and I really believe in that idea of open endings. Like, it's almost like when your favorite TV show ends, and you're like, oh no, I'm never gonna see those people on the screen again. What am I gonna do? And you feel like a total loser. Like I feel like in nonfiction, you should be able to see that person moving into their life. And I would say even if they've died, like in like when Breath Becomes Air, Paul Kalanithi's book that I worked on with his widow Lucy, in the epilogue, like you know he had a wife and the living wife and a daughter and like they went they were going on even though his story was over like we needed to see them kind of like the space for them to move into right um and so because ronan still had time left when i finished the book i wanted him to have some space at the end of that to open out into whatever was next which was death but you know at the time so the answer the answer when it comes to endings is like it's like part intuition and part like deep understanding of the story that you're telling. Yeah. Or it'll tell yeah, you. Exactly. Or sometimes flipping the beginning and the ending. That's happened to me a couple of times where I, like in Sanctuary, the beginning was the ending and the ending was the beginning. And then at the end I was like, oh, flip. So and it worked. It's different. I think every project has its own little, its own little quirks, right? I didn't realize you worked on When Breath Becomes Air. Yeah. Yeah, you were like de develop developmental editing. Like uh, kind of well, you know, Paul died um, before he completely finished the book, so we went back through and looked at the book, and then I worked with his widow on the epilogue, which um, which was you know amazing. It was she's we become really good friends. It was like one of the most profound experiences in terms of like collaborating with someone on a project, and and he's very much alive in that book, and you know, and and, and so is she and her daughter. They've gone on, and I think it's it would have been a very different book, I think, if she hadn't been fresh in her grief, which she was able to sort of go there. But she was, because she's the badass, so. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Yeah. Like the timing of when we write mm -hmm. about certain things. Because, mm -hmm. like, your relationship to the past changes as you move through life and you change, and so, like, whatever take you're putting down in a book, in whatever, what, feverish six-month stretch of time, completely different than yeah. what you would probably come up with six years later yeah. right, or 10 years later. And Paul's you know. book too. I mean, it's, he is also writing under extreme duress, but he's super cool. Like he's very, like he was very calm about it. Like he didn't have that kind of fiery stuff, but there's still that, 
that, oh, I'm running out of time feeling in the book too, which I think makes it an even more powerful, right? Because he was. Yeah. And he did. Well, it's been a delight to talk with you. I appreciate the time. I know you taught today, so you're I, teaching again in this episode. You're probably like, I, I just need a beverage. Sense. I was like, <laughs> am I making sense? <laughs> you're making perfect sense. And uh, I appreciate it. And are you, like you said, you're working on a craft book. Yes. Is that what your, is that your next project? Yeah, it's called I Would Die If I Were You. And it's, oh, okay. So that's yeah. the craft book. I mean, I may, hopefully I'll get that title. It, it's coming out with Counterpoint. Yeah, I think 24, five, whatever. And, and it is like a, like just like a, a general craft book. It sounds like it's a cra like a specific kind of craft it book is. or is it? Okay. But like, like what? You, like, have you read Rick Rubin's The Creative Act? No, but I'm familiar with yeah, it. Like Jeff Jam Records, he's so cool. I'm not I'm not him. I didn't start Jeff Jam Records, but it's basically like Rick Rubin for really sad intellectual people. So it's basically <laughs> like here's how to cultivate a mindset of creativity no matter who you are, what you do, where you can engage with the world in a creative way and frame things, like narratively frame things. And it has it doesn't have exercises in it, but it's basically like it's a it's a mindset sh mindset shift or perspective shift like the whole thinking in threes or like engaging with death what i can teach you about writing the tornado idea like how you can get inside your narratives and not waste time in terms of telling them and i think people feel that pressure especially in nonfiction because it's about their lives and we know those are coming to an end at some point but i love that book by rick rubin i think that what he talks about with mindfulness with um you know, not white knuckling your computer to, to create like, so the book is basically about how to get the best and most joyous experience of creativity and writing out of yourself with the least amount of effort, which is my MO. I was going to say, <laughs> sounds great. I'm sold. I'm sold. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Emily. Well, listen, really appreciate the time. Best of luck Thank on you. the new craft book and whatever comes next. Thanks so much. I appreciate it, Brad. All right, you guys, there we have it. That was my conversation with Emily Rapp Black, all about creative nonfiction, truth in creative nonfiction. Emily's books, once again, include Poster Child, The Still Point of the Turning World, Sanctuary, Frida Kahlo and My Left Leg, and a forthcoming craft book entitled I Would Die If I Were You. You can find Emily on the internet at emilyrappblack.com. She's also on Instagram. And be sure to check out Cersei Consulting, the developmental editing and coaching company that she runs with Gina Frangello. It is a superb resource for writers. You can find it on the internet at CerseiConsulting.net. And I believe it also has an Instagram. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, and Blue Sky. Join the Patreon community. Support this show. Help keep it rolling into the future. You can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Don't forget to subscribe to my newsletter. It's free. You can do that at otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. And if you have a couple of minutes and you want to do me a favor, please rate this podcast wherever you listen. Give it a rating. Write a quick review. It helps the show find new listeners. If you want to get another people t-shirt, you can do that at otherppl.com. Just scroll down, look for the t-shirt. You can't miss it. And last but not least, a plug for my novel, my latest novel. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, available now in trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook, so I'll read it to you if you want. 
go get my novel. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. All right, so coming up on Wednesday, I'm going to be in conversation with Maya Binyam, whose debut novel is called Hangman. It just published on FSG, and it has been generating a lot of buzz. This is a very gifted young author, and I had a great time talking with Maya Binyam. So 